We've gone through several points in the last couple of studies. We have now come to point number 12. Point number 12. Number 12 states that we should understand love as it is expressed in the greatest and second greatest commandments. Understand love according to the greatest and second greatest commandments. Why do we call them the greatest and second greatest commandments? And what do they entail? Mark 12, 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28. Whatever contradicts the true love of God cannot be the correct interpretation of Scripture. And whatever contradicts the love of neighbor cannot be in accordance with Scripture. We must evaluate everything we read and everything we do based on these two commandments. Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Our Lord says that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord and to love one's neighbor. Everything we encounter in Scripture must draw us to love God and to love our neighbor. We continue to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, excuse me, 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We love, we are able to love only because God first loved us. Then, if God first loved us and his love has been perfected in us, 1 John 2, 5, 
if his love has been perfected in us, it will lead us to love our neighbor. That's why the apostle says in verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If God's love is truly in him, he would not and should not hate his brother. If he does, he is a liar. If he claims, I love God. Why? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It is impossible. That's why he says cannot. It is impossible to love God if we are not loving our brother. The brother who, whom we see is to be loved. Otherwise, there is no way to love the God whom we cannot see. And it's a commandment, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The two go together. Just as our Lord presented them together, John understood him correctly and restates it right here in 1 John. Having said so, that our love of God is manifested in loving our neighbor. Point number 13 will give us some explanation as to how we are to love God. It will give us some explanation how we are to love God. How can we say so? The point number 13 is the ten commandments. The Ten Commandments will teach us how we truly can love God and that we can truly love our neighbor. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Loving our neighbor is fulfilled in keeping the Ten Commandments. In particular, he is addressing the second half or the last six of the Ten Commandments, not to commit adultery or murder, theft or covetousness. And any other commandment, he says. This is the true way to love our neighbor, which means we cannot say we love God and we cannot say we love our neighbor, when at the same time we commit adultery, we commit murder, we steal, and we covet. The two cannot go hand in hand. Committing the sins and claiming to love our neighbor and therefore God is false if the two are together. The claim would be a false claim. This is the gospel. It is not legalism. It's not pharisaicalism. 
It is the gospel. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. The apostle tells us that living a righteous life in accordance with the Ten Commandments is, in fact, congruent with the gospel. 1 Timothy 1, 8. <clears throat> but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What if someone is a killer of father and mother? The unrepentant killer of father and mother. He's thrown into prison. He's going to deserve the death penalty. He's going to be executed. But at the same time, he claims to be Christian. Is he a Christian? If he's unrepentant? No. So there is no such things no such thing as a Christian killer. No Christian killer. No Christian murderer. No Christian sexually immoral <coughs> men. No Christian homosexual. No Christian kidnapper. No Christian liars. No Christian perjurers. And no Christian whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It's impossible. Keeping this in mind, it helps us to understand that when we interpret the Bible, it cannot cause us to contradict the Ten Commandments. We cannot say we love God and say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and worship a golden calf, Exodus 32. It's a contradiction. No matter how much they say it, no matter how loudly they say it, no matter whether they have a festival and dance and play, it doesn't matter, it's still false. How about Micah the Ephraimite? Micah the Ephraimite, he and his mother took some silver and made idols out of the silver to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord. And he, then he <clears throat> hired his sons, and after that he hired a Levite, and then he says, now I know that the Lord will bless me, seeing that I have a Levite as priest. That's in Judges 17. You see how... Any contradiction of the Ten Commandments immediately is false, immediately is wrong, and the interpretation that contradicts the Ten Commandments is a false interpretation. <clears throat> Whether an inner biblical interpretation or uh, an interpretation to apply to one's life, if we contradict the Ten Commandments, it is wrong, 
its faults. Number 14. Number 14. The attributes of God. There are many attributes of God. He's holy, righteous, just, loving, merciful, gracious. He's good. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's eternal. He has many attributes. If the attributes of God are undermined by our interpretation, then it's a false interpretation. For example, let's choose two attributes. His holiness. Is God holy or not? Is he holy or not? Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is high and exalted. He is eternal. He lives forever. His name is holy. <coughs> Just as the seraphim in Isaiah 6.3, they cry out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It says that he dwells in a high and holy place, but where else does he condescend to dwell? In a holy heart, in a heart that's been converted. The converted heart is described as contrite, lowly of spirit, the spirit of the lowly, the heart of the contrite. That's a humble heart. He dwells also in a humble heart where there is a measure of holiness that he has created in that heart. The holiness of God is a thoroughly New Testament doctrine also. We find it in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. He is, God is the Holy One. He says that He is holy, verse 16. And therefore, 
you shall be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy in all our behavior. God is holy. No interpretation should undermine the holiness of God. Let's also see another attribute, his love. The love of God. Isaiah 43. Yes, Isaiah. Isaiah both taught his holiness and righteousness, but also his love. His particular love, his special love, his love for his elect. Not a universal, automatic love, but a conditional love, an unequal love for his elect. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament ought to be called the Testament of Love. Isaiah 43.1 But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. These exact words in the present tense, these three words, I love you, are only found here, Isaiah 43, 4, in the whole Bible. Right here. If they are special to us, it's right here in the Old Testament, the Testament of love. Jeremiah says something similarly in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 1 to 6. 31, 1 to 6. And particularly notice verse 3. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived a sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. 
Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy them. For there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. God says about His chosen people, His elect, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Even verse 2 says that the people found grace. They found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the attributes of God, whatever they may be, must be consistently understood and interpreted. No contradiction. Point 15. Number 15. We need to believe in the solas of the Reformation. Sola means only or alone. Only or alone. Even our word soul comes from the Latin word sola. And in the time of the Reformation and so forth, there were five of them. <coughs> five of them which were summarized like this. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, the glory of God alone. Scripture alone. We cannot mix the wisdom of men, which is earthly, natural, and demonic, we cannot mix it with the Word of God. We need the pure, holy, 100% refined Word of God. That's what Scripture alone is teaching. For examples of Scripture alone, Isaiah chapter 8 Isaiah 8, 19 to 22. Isaiah 8, 19. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And they, those who seek after mediums and spiritists, and they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. 
People are always recommending the consultation of others, mediums and spiritists here. But God says that everyone should be consulting the law and the testimony. It has to be only the Bible itself, Scripture alone, that should be our consultation. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. The apostle taught the Corinthians not to exceed what is written. If we exceed, if we go beyond what's written in the Bible, adding by its very nature the traditions of men, the wisdom of men, which wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. James 3.15 If we go beyond the bounds of Scripture, he says that we are arrogant in behalf of one against the other. True humility is Scripture alone. Scripture plus men equals arrogance according to 1 Corinthians 4.6. And according to Isaiah 8, it equals the consultation of demons, evil spirits, witches, and warlocks, and Satan himself. We belong to Satan, Isaiah 8, and we are arrogant in 1 Corinthians 4. That's why Scripture alone is so important. Another sola is Christ alone. Christ alone is our Savior, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Christ only is our Savior. No one else and nothing else. Isaiah 45, 22. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is only one God throughout the whole earth. That's why the whole earth, all the peoples of the earth, must turn to Him to be saved. Turn to me and be saved. No salvation apart from our God, the true and living God in Christ. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. 23 mentions every knee will bow and swear allegiance, which is quoted in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. They're going to bow before the Lord Jesus. So even Isaiah 45, 22 to 23 is preaching Jesus Christ that everyone will bow to him. But Jesus says it 
during his ministry in John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. <coughs> Christ alone saves. It's also grace alone. The third point of the solas, the third sola, grace alone. Romans 11. Romans 11, 5 and 6. Romans 11, 5 and 6. It's not grace that makes up the difference. It's not grace that gives us a kickstart. It's not grace that gives us a booster. It's not grace like that. It is grace alone. The grace of God alone. Not grace plus free will. It's grace alone. 11, 5. Romans 11, 5 and 6. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It is God's gracious choice that anybody believes, the remnant believes. And if it is by grace, it is not works. If it is grace plus works, then grace is no longer grace. It has to be grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The apostle tells us here as well that it is by grace that we are saved. It does not come from within. It does not come of ourselves. It is the gift of God, which means it has to descend to us from heaven. It has to come from that supernatural, miraculous place in heaven and then to undermine, contradict, subvert the perverse human heart and substitute in there a heart of flesh. That's God's grace that does it. And it's not works. By grace, through faith, not works. Good works follow, but good works don't earn it. Next, it is faith alone. We might choose our same passage here, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
Now, heretics, especially those who believe in free will, and not just Catholics, but many others, they will say, oh yes, we are saved through faith, but it's not faith alone. It has to be faith plus works. However, there is no possibility of that in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 does not say we are saved through faith plus works in order to obtain salvation. It says you have been saved through faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Have been saved through faith. Not will be saved through faith and works, which is what the false doctrine teaches. They also say, nowhere does the Bible say Scripture alone. Nowhere does the Bible say Christ alone. Nowhere does the Bible say grace alone. Nowhere does the Bible say faith alone. They say so. The Bible doesn't use those phrases, but it certainly teaches those concepts. It certainly teaches those concepts. And if they're going to be quick to say the Bible doesn't use those words and therefore we shouldn't believe them, then they shouldn't call their churches Lutheran Church. They shouldn't call their churches Catholic Church. They shouldn't call their churches Wesleyan Church and so forth. They're being hypocrites because those words are not found in the Bible. Especially Lutheran or Wesleyan or Methodist and so forth. They're not found in the Bible. Another place where it is expressed is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. That faith is faith alone. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive. But if you did receive it, why do you boast (coughs) as if you had not received it? What do you have that you did not receive? What's he talking about? Is he talking about physical life or spiritual life or both? He's talking about both. He's talking about everything. Everything we have is what we received. Received, and he's not talking about an intermediate source. He's not talking about a immediate source. He's not talking about a middleman source. What's he talking about? What do you have that you did not receive? Which source does he have in mind? The heavenly source, God himself. That God is the giver of all things. Whether we have a lot or a little, whatever we have, including faith, it has to come from God. And He alone is the giver of faith. Point number 16. Point number 16. 
Well, actually, let's pause here. Let's pause here and we'll proceed next time with point number 16. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.